Welcome to the premiere of Espresso Talks, your source for interviews with a wide range of unique people from diverse backgrounds around the world. I'm your host, Anthony T. Eaton. In this episode, I sit down with Ellen Matzer and Valerie Hughes, authors of the book Nurses on the Inside, Stories of the HIV AIDS Epidemic in New York City. So, Ellen and Valerie, thank you so much for making time to meet with me, and also thank you for writing such a, a great book. I have had the opportunity to read it coming out and growing up at the advent of, of the AIDS epidemic. I remember vividly what it was like, the devastation, the fear, all of it. It's obvious what the, the catalyst for the book is, but at what point did you to decide that, hey, we're going to put our story into a book and put it out there for others? Well, I think, uh, let's see, we, we the book came out in 2019, so we decided to write it in 2017. It was about a, almost a two-year process. The, the backstory behind that is I have a friend that I've known since I'm 10 years old, who is a uh, history professor and an attorney. And we had gotten together in a group of people from my grammar school days back in 2017. And we hadn't seen each other in almost 50 years. As the, the, the get together was progressing, we went around the, the sofa and said, so what have you been up to for the last 50 years? And everybody knew I was a nurse. And then I uh, explained how uh, I had worked in HIV and AIDS. And my friend, whose name is Professor Lane, said, you should write a book about that. And I said, nah, you know, who would want to hear about that kind of thing? He says, no, 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 you should write a book. He was insistent. And I just sort of, you know, tossed it off for a little while. And then um, the summer, because we had gotten together in the winter, in the summer, I started thinking about it um seriously and I, I just sat down at the computer and started typing all these memories I've had and stories just started to come alive you know it started it started off as a solo project for me and then I said wait a minute <laughs> something's missing and then I called up Valerie and I said Valerie we're writing a book and she said okay what are we writing about <laughs> and that's how it that's really really how it got off the ground and then it just took off from there Val, you have to you have to add to this my, my strongest memory of pre-writing the book was uh jotting down a bunch of stories and then having you, you when you and your mother and kenny came over to the house and we had lunch and i was in the back i had all this stuff already written and you had all of this stuff already written and i realized that it could really happen. Um, I, I actually do a lot of writing. I would like to think academic writing. I've written journal articles and I'm in, involved. I work in, and certainly at the time, I'm only part-time now, but I worked full-time in the university setting. Um, and so I do a lot of writing anyway, but this was a completely different kettle of fish. <laughs> this is totally new. So it was kind of exciting to do something that I was not used to doing. Well, it's wonderfully written in and put together, brought back a lot of memories as I was reading through what you were sharing on the pages. 
And I hope it had a sense of time and place. I hope it, it did. It really, it really um, does. And it resonates, especially, I think, for me, again, having come up in that era and remembering what it was like. And I was 14, 15 years old when, you know, news started to come out about this strange virus and what was happening and the gay community and, you know, nobody really knew what was happening. I was in the Midwest, I'm from Minnesota. And so it wasn't quite the same as, you know, where you were in New York and obviously seeing it, we weren't at that point seeing you know, the impact we were hearing from other places in the country. It brought back a lot. When you first started hearing the rumblings of this, and you talk about that in the book, did you think it was going to be this huge pandemic? Did you think it was going to have the devastating effect that it did? Oh, definitely not. No. We didn't know. We had not the slightest idea. Maybe that came across a little bit in the book, but we were siloed, if you will. Um, we worked in our hospital. We didn't really spend a lot of time talking to nurses at other hospitals. Not that we weren't friendly with nurses at other hospitals, but you just don't always discuss your cases when you meet up with them. And there was also no venue for that. There was no uh, ANAC, American, you know, nurses and aides care, basically. Um, and if you no, belong to- phones. There no were no cell phones, media, no social media. taking pictures. I mean, no TikTok, no, you know, all this stuff yeah. is shared everywhere now. And, you yeah. know, we had no nothing back then, nothing. So right. who thought to document it? You know, I mean, it was only almost 30 years later where we started to reflect back on all these things and, and realize how significant it was. I mean, I, I, I look at it and I say, gosh, you know, it's kind of amazing that we didn't get together with people from other institutions. But the fact of the matter is there was no precedent for that. I mean, you could have citywide grand rounds and ID, for example. That was really a nothing thing back in those days. All of the nurses organizations basically like they just were not meant for getting together on a local level to see what was what in your institution. There just was nothing like that at the time. In fact, we were, I was one of the founding members of the Association of Nurses and AIDS Care. So, you know, because we saw the need. Yeah, I, so. I certainly think that we take for granted today the social media and the platforms of sharing information where, you know, we didn't have those back then and the information, um, I think especially with the LGBTQ community, you know, we had our local newspapers. Um, obviously, things weren't covered in the mainstream press the way they are today. So, oh yeah, quite a difference. No, you were looking at uh, morbidity and mortality. Weekly Review was the only thing that you looked at for any kind of information. Even the New England Journal didn't have much. Sometimes, the, I mean, in the beginning, there were a couple of letters, but it took quite a long time for people to realize this was a big deal. Did you ever imagine that your careers would intersect with something that would have such social impact as HIV has had? I mean, we thought that we were in our end, our sort of our end uh, subspecialty, which was intensive care. Both of us thought, oh, this is where we'll be and where we'll be forever. Um, and I kept trying to figure out a career ladder that would allow me to do that in a clinical sense, because 
don't know if you know this about nursing, but there's basically two tracks you can take, administrative or clinical. And if you go administrative, then basically it takes you away from the bedside. If you go clinical, then you can stay at the bedside and or go into teaching. And then, of course, if you do what I did, which was to become a nurse practitioner, you stay with the patient, not necessarily at the bedside. Uh, it, it's definitely far and away removed from administration, which I wanted to stay as far away from as possible. So we didn't know that we were going to do anything else. This is, was like a specialty that mm-hmm. was evolved as we grew up in nursing. Yes, there was there was no HIV specialty. The first one was the St. Clair's Hospital. And I, I recall, because Val and I had left both left Roosevelt Hospital in the city, which is where the book begins, and I was working in a hospital in Queens, and I remember seeing the New York Times advertisement for St. Clair's first designated AIDS unit, you know, and that I'll, I'll never forget the, the saying, it was, make your contribution to human health when your contribution can be most crucial. And I read that, it was a huge page, it was a whole page, an advertisement, and I I remember saying to my former husband at the time, who was also a nurse, I said, we need to go there. And then there I was, showed up, I mean, showed up and and literally started like after the weekend. I mean, it was that quick, that quick. They were so, St. Clair's was so desperate for nurses. I mean, nobody would work there, nobody. I was the first nurse, registered nurse, on one of the units and my husband, former husband was the second nurse on the other unit because we they started two units. And I was- You have to remember someone. though, that St. Clair's had a very bad reputation at the time. Yes. So that's yes. why nobody imagined they would be the first AIDS designated unit. Yeah, they, I mean, the hospital was, was being, you know, financially salvaged by putting this program in. And not to mention it was it was such a horrendous part of the city to even be working in, in Hell's Kitchen. It was not a good area. The hospital was so run down. I remember walking in there and going, oh my God, you know, there's no air conditioning. There were, you know, there were bathrooms. There were no chairs. Bathtubs. <laughs> I mean, we really started, really, when I think about it, and you know. When Val and I get a chance to talk about it and we, we reminisce about it, like we started in units and clinic with nothing, no furniture, of course, no computers, no, no chart holders, no chart racks, no doctors. I mean, really anybody that walked in the door of St. Clair's got hired and trained to do something, whether it be unit secretary, of course, the nurses had to be nurses, but the orderlies, nursing assistants, unit secretaries, they just walked in the door. This, can you be a unit secretary? Sure. Okay, here you are. Sit and answer the phone and then figure out what's next. I mean, really, it was it was like that. You know, there was no requirement to be a certified nursing assistant or have any background in, in secretarial services or hospital terminology, medical terminology. You just walked in and if you weren't afraid you had a job. Well, that was the other thing. If you weren't afraid, you had a job because so many people were afraid. People were so afraid that they would not come and work uh, with people with HIV. They wouldn't, nurses, you know, who had worked for years and years would refuse to go into the rooms. 
I don't know if you saw Pose. Did you ever, did you watch yes. Pose? Yes. <laughs> so when Billy Porter's lover was passing away and it, he went in and he saw trays outside the door, that was very common. People didn't get anything to eat because they would leave the tray outside the door. Wow. So, I mean, which is insane. <laughs> you talk about this in the book, how you both experienced the ignorance, the fear of the virus, but also towards the LGBT community, but, you know, somebody talking about how they deserved it. Did you lose oh, relationships? that happened all the time. Yeah. Did you lose <laughs> relationships over all of that ignorance and the attitudes, the indifference? Well, that's a good question because I'm not sure I had any kind of decent relationship with people who would have felt that way to begin with. Anybody who would have said that, I would have just blown them off anyway. But there was a lot of that all, we always heard stuff like that. I can remember when my father got sick, I made sure that he was shaved and that his nails were clean and everything because I knew that if he didn't present, even though he was sick, if he didn't present at a certain level of socioeconomic being that they would treat him terribly in the hospital. And I worried about that all the time when people got admitted to the hospital, that they wouldn't be treated nice because they would be treated like GOMERS, which was this acronym that came from this incredibly stupid book called The House of God. It stands for Get Out of My Emergency Room. For people who were so cynical about their own practice that they felt that there were people who deserved medicine and people who did not deserve treatment and medicine. And that persists to this very day. I've got news for you. <laughs> if you think it doesn't, just have a look at who's getting vaccinated and who's not, uh, given people who are willing, I mean, and think about where money is going and where money is not going. And there is still the very strong level of stigma and prejudice and inequality so, in um, AIDS care and in, um, and in healthcare in general. You know, I mean, our current situation it, it, to me is very reminiscent of what we went through. Obviously, there's, there's a lot of differences, but there's similar threads to that. There are many parallels, I think, between, you know, end inequality, which is this uh, year's World AIDS Day theme and equality and AIDS and and what ha what's happened all along with the COVID pandemic. Who has access to care? Who has access to education? Who who has access to services? I mean, there are so many pangs of familiarity for us, being back in the '70s and '80s through that, and now today. Albeit not, you know, we're not we're not on the front lines. I'm sort of peripherally on it now because I teach uh, with in skilled nursing facilities where people who are now suffering the long-term effects of COVID are now being put in long-term care facilities on vent ventilators. Uh, many many of them, their initial issue was in fact COVID, and we see where that is heading. So uh, there, uh, the parallels are just are really uncanny for me, you know, seeing it now. When I first get to the facility with my students, I don't know why people have been on ventilators. I, you know, after we review the charts and we go through it and I realize how many of these people, again, people of color, people of lower socioeconomic status, people who did not have the wherewithal to make an informed decision about their health care 
are languishing in skilled nursing facilities on ventilators. Early in the pandemic in the book, you write, as history notes, it was an instance for our tendency as a species to exhibit less than proud moments in times of doubt and fear. Similarities, I mean, it rings so true. We're talking about these parallels. Well, stress uh, affects people in different ways and not always do we rise to the occasion. And, you know, I didn't always rise to the occasion. So <clears throat> it's not like I was perfect. So it's just that I, I think I had a different view. I, I think I'm happy to have been blessed with the ability to see people as human beings and not just as numbers or disease entities. And that's, it's something that I guess you have to cultivate. When you think about the issues at stake going back to COVID, there's two ways of looking at it. You look at it in the public health perspective, but then you have to look at it individual by individual as Ellen is now looking at it. I look at it more in the public health perspective because I've been working on the vaccine studies. But when you see somebody who's had the ravages of a disease and is now almost definitely permanently on a ventilator, that really brings it home. Yeah, I, you know, I think if it were not for our experience back in the late 70s, all the way through, you know, through 2000 and beyond for Valerie, I mean, when AIDS went to chronic outpatient, I went back to critical care and the administrative track as well. And Valerie stayed in research and in primary care. But I think not having had that experience back then uh, would have perhaps led me to a different path now. And I think it's so important now, you know, that I'm a professor for licensed practical nurses. The, the nursing shortage is, is so ever-present now. I mean, when COVID happened, nurses walked off their jobs. I mean, I, again, I, I see it more from a global perspective because, you know, now we have social media and inter-hospital reporting and stuff like that. But we know, looking back at it, that um, when AIDS started ravaging New York City hospitals, Healthcare workers walked off their jobs. Yes, rather than take care of somebody with HIV, they would walk off the job. Which is amazing to me that healthcare professionals would do that when you make that commitment to... Back in the day, there this, this whole comparison between HIV and COVID is one of scale. Because uh, in 2020, the... Not only did you have nurses fearful of their lives, but they also were working 12-hour shifts for seven days in a row, which is untenable. Mm -hmm. So there was just there was way too much abuse of the of the staff that they had. But what were you going to do? Because you needed more and more staff. When you think about in the institution where I work alone, we have roughly 200 ICU beds, and we had to add another 250 ICU beds. So that's all very well and good to add beds, but where do you find the skilled nurses to take care of them? Because ICU nursing is not just regular nursing. There are a bunch of other things you need to know. But back in the day, it was in some ways much more shocking because you were talking about people who were willing to give up their good jobs because they didn't want to take care of one patient. We're not talking about overloading them with three patients on ventilators. We're talking about one patient. And I don't know how this, the, I mean, I know how the hospitals handled it. If you weren't willing to take care of patients, they actually 
met you halfway. They tried to give the assignment to somebody else. And I know because Ellen and I often took the assignment. So that was, you know, people volunteered and took care of things. But you do wonder how you go into this kind of profession and and not realize that there, there are sometimes some jobs that you're going to have to do that are less uh, wonderful. On page 76, after visiting a female patient named Gloria, Ellen, you asked the question, do you think we help? Was that a question that you asked yourself often? And did you ever think about, you know, just quitting? I can't do this. Because it's so emotionally taxing, right? I mean, beyond just the the field that you work in in nursing, where you're caring Mm -hmm. for people who are, you know, physically often at their worst, sometimes emotionally and mentally as well, Mm -hmm. but at such a scale. Of, of what you were faced with at that mm-hmm. time. Yeah, I, I mean, Valerie and I, you know, talked about this for, you know, the duration of writing this book and when the book first came out and often reflected back on what we did. Was there anything we could have done better? Did we actually help anybody? I mean, we didn't save anybody. That's for sure. We didn't go, we didn't save anybody's life. I mean, I'm not even sure that we really prolonged anybody's life back then. I mean, certainly when Valerie went into research and there were the cocktails that are, I mean, this is pre any cocktail that we had or pre AZT. There was nothing, there was no hope to offer. How do you offer hope in the face of no hope? in the face of hopelessness. And I think that we relieved suffering. I mean, we walked through the illness with people as I think I think we pointed out in the book. I mean, we relieved pain, we kept people clean. If they had family that visited, we kept them involved. We tried to come up with different things that we thought patients might eat to gain weight. Like I, I remember we would talk with our dietitian friend and we would, come up with all kinds of concoctions. I mean, our, we would buy carnation instant breakfast, the drink. And instead of putting milk in somebody's cereal, we would mix the carnation instant breakfast in the milk and put it in the cereal. Thinking, all right, just could we get them a few extra calories to you know, get their nutrition just a little bit better, just so they could fight off these infections. I mean, th- this is the level with which we were thinking. We had no drugs. So all we had was what, you know, we had a, a, a little sheet, I remember, that we, we came up with, with, again, with the dietitian, like, you know, put mayonnaise on everything, put butter on everything, you know, put syrup on everything. I mean, we just... This Thin is out milk with heavy cream instead right. of milk. Right, right. Let's drink any heavy extra cream. calorie. Yeah. yeah, ice cream sundaes, you know, and, and when we were at Lenox Hill, we had a volunteer and we... We created a program called Sundays on Tuesdays, and our lovely volunteer went out every Tuesday to the local supermarket and bought ice cream and sprinkles and, you know, anything you could put, imagine to put on top of ice cream, syrups and caramels, and, and anybody that could eat an ice cream sundae had an ice cream sundae that day. And we were, I remember we would go around, of course, she would offer it to the staff as well, and some of the staff would enjoy the sundaes a to just to eat alongside the patient. So maybe they would eat because somebody who has no appetite certainly does not want to sit there and eat by themselves. So the right, staff right. would sometimes eat an ice cream sundae just so that a patient would eat the ice cream sundae. You know, when you think back on it, you know, and I say, Val, you know, we, 
we we gave carnation instant breakfast. We put butter and mayonnaise on everything. We put dressing and gravy and like, did we actually do anything for anybody? Um, I don't know. I think about some of the patients that we had that we thought they were getting better and then they would die. And it was just, uh, I feel in some ways we were definitely just pushing that rock up the hill. On the other hand, we were very present in everybody's life. And I think that was the value that we added. Um, people did not die alone when when we could arrange that. I mean, some of my, when I managed the clinic at one point, and so sometimes my patients would die at home alone. But to the degree that we could prevent that, we did. And we had all sorts of ways of doing it. Even the patients that weren't on ADEAST, you know, we... Ellen's staff would go visit them. I would go visit them. So they would always have somebody see them every day so that they would know they were cared for. And that, that's got to be important. You know, there's something to be said, I think, for care and comfort for people who, who find themselves in what you obviously describe as perhaps hopeless situations. Mm-hmm. You talk also about a practical approach to caring for patients and the waste of things like double gloving and gowning. And obviously, you know, PPE wasn't a thing back then. It became a thing because of that PPE. There was no such thing before. Did you each have a fear, though, of, I mean, you knew what to do. You described that in the book. I'm a professional. I know what I'm supposed to be doing. But was there that fear in the back of your head sometimes of, it could happen to me? I, I could be exposed. I could be infected. You know, for me, never, never once did I think that I would get AIDS. I and I always said because I used to my my mentor, who was the director of the program, who's mentioned in the book, is Thomas. He he always said, you know, if it were that easy to get AIDS, we'd all be sitting around comparing symptoms. And That's I, what that I always, said too. That always stuck with me. And I always said that. I said, if we're that easy to get, we'd all be sitting here comparing symptoms. So like I knew, you know, I mean, I knew when we found out it was bloodborne, you know, I I had two pregnancies while I was working with people with AIDS. Uh, My first son was born in 88 and my daughter was born in 1990. And people would say to me, well, you're pregnant. Aren't you worried about the baby? Well, no. You know, and I would say, well, I'm not having sex with any of my patients. And I'm not sharing any needles with them. So what's the problem? I was interviewed about being pregnant. I can't tell you how many times I'm having prenatal care and I'm not exposing myself to somebody else's blood. Never occurred to me to be fearful at all. You know, whereas other people would, you know, put on gloves unnecessarily. I, I, at Lenox Hill, I actually let people go, staff that were wearing gloves unnecessarily. I mean, now now we have to wear gloves no matter what room we're in because of all of the resistant infections and germs that have occurred over the years, decades of using antibiotics. And, you know, so everybody's kind of on a contact precaution. So you don't go into like any room without a pair of gloves anymore. But back then, we didn't want to add any more stigma. You know, if I said to one of my staff, if you're not comfortable bringing the tray in to the patient or holding their hand and there's no exposure of bodily fluids, holding somebody's hand, bringing in a tray, watching television with them, playing cards, et cetera. I said, you can't work here. And that was it. I actually did um, ask two staff members to leave because they thought they should be wearing gloves all the time. And I said, that's not acceptable here. 
had a volunteer also that wanted to be there doing an appropriate thing. And what was interesting back then, and I, I don't know that we really touched on that in the book, when we were at Lenox Hill, since Lenox Hill was kind of an upscale hospital, there was a lot of money. There was a lot of donation money. So we could do a lot of extra things for the patients. You know, we could have Halloween parties and Christmas and Thanksgiving and, you know, Valentine's with money for decorations, money for, for really everything that the, the Sundays, extra food, uh, ordering out for people. So it attracted a lot of volunteers. So we saw the LGBTQ community, and I recall this so vividly, come together in a way I don't think we've ever seen before, right? Even with, you know, the beginning of the gay rights movement, this kind of activism. Were you surprised by that? I mean, I, I remember seeing things on the news, especially in large cities like New York, where the community I mean, really stood up and demanded something be done. Well, yeah, I mean, I the first research job I had was with a community-based organization called Community Research Initiative, and they were co-housed with ACT UP on, in, in a neighborhood called Chelsea. And so I was very much a part of witnessing ACT UP, although I didn't do demonstrations because I was busy doing research. It actually didn't surprise me too much. I was just really glad to see it because it was time that somebody said to the powers that be, we are worth your effort and attention and you cannot blow us off anymore. And as a result, there have been huge changes for all patients who interact with the medical system. The medical system is very unfriendly to patients, as you may know if you've ever engaged with any kind of medical care. Just to give you a couple of examples, you know, it was very common for people, for doctors not to actually give you a diagnosis or tell you what was going on or explain what kind of options there were. You just had to do what the doctor wanted and you didn't have any say in the matter. When you got admitted to the hospital, you had to put up with enormous amounts of bullshit stigma from staff members who would even say mean things to you. I'm not necessarily saying nurses, but all all staff members. And you had to put up with having rounds, having yourself discussed in extremely pejorative terms during rounds that were cloaked as being strictly medical, but really there was a lot of bullshit being tossed around in rounds in those days also. And so God help you if you were gay or black or a sex worker or God, anything that was not middle-class and white, you know, it was just really a, a hard time for people. And finally gay men just stood up and said fuck no we're not putting up with this anymore and this is what we want and we will keep yelling until we get it and they got it and so the thing that they got amongst other things was a complete change to the patient bill of rights Mm -hmm. which may not seem like a big deal to you but it's really a huge deal it gives you actual rights to confront people who may not be treating you properly or giving you the information that you deserve And I don't know if you know this, but now if you belong to a a clinic or something like that, where they write notes in a a format, well, Epic is the one that we use, you're actually allowed to see what the doctor writes about you, not just Mm -hmm. lab results, which happened a couple of years ago, but now you could see your progress notes. And so people have to really 
give some thought to some of the crap that they write in, in progress notes that is really prejudicial to the person who might read it, which is going to be the next doctor taking care of you. So um, I think in many ways, they said, you have to stop treating people like trash and treat us like human beings. Got down on my knees and said, thank God, because that was a tremendous movement forward for all patients. I don't know, Anthony, if you've uh, read the book that just came out by Peter Staley called Never Silent. I no, actually I just been, I just finished it. And wow. I mean, it's his memoir because he's one of the founding members of ACT UP in New York. I just finished the book and, and I was, you know, most of it I remembered. Again, I wasn't a member of ACT UP. I wasn't out there demonstrating and getting arrested because, you know, Val and I were too busy on the inside, which is where the title right. comes from taking care of the people, there were plenty of people that were willing to go protest and get arrested and have their voices heard. But, you know, we had to stay somewhere where we were taking care of the people that were, were dying. Right. Start the IVs, um, draw the blood, clean right. up the poop, do all the right. stuff that needed to get done. That, not but, everybody can do that. <laughs> right. But if you, if you read the book, Never Silent by Peter Staley, it will give you the entire history of ACT UP a year and you know, chapter and verse of, of all the interactions between him and Fauci and Larry Kramer and all those people that, you know, most of whom have passed on, but some are long-term survivors, including Peter Staley. People assume that because we were taking care of people with AIDS, that we were activists. I mean, we were activists in, in regard to, you know, taking care of our one-to-one -one patient or one-to-two or one-to-three patients. We, we were activists for their advocating, for their health and safety as much as we can. We, we weren't out there, you know, holding protest signs. So, you know, it's, it's interesting because the, the people that got the most press were those that were outside holding protest signs. And when Peter Staley had a giant condom put on Jesse Helms' home, you know, that, that attracted more attention than Valerie and I, you know, by a bedside cleaning up somebody who had poop themselves, you know, that was, was more interesting. I think what, what's important is that we brought to light, you know, what we all were doing when everybody else was out there getting arrested and getting on, on the news. It all came together to form this movement, if you will, that forwarded research and the, re the, and the agenda of people who uh, were infected or affected by HIV. Well, and activism takes all kinds of forms, right? So yes. it, it doesn't mean one is less than the mm -hmm. other because they're all needed and, and play an integral part. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like there, there was a turning point in the pandemic where you felt or you said, we can control it even if we can't cure it? So for me, it was this day in 1995. So on November 30th of 1995, sequinavir and 3TC were released. 3TC is ep epivir, and it became AZT, 3TC, and sequinavir became the first cocktail, basically. And when we saw the results of that, all of a sudden I had hope that this was going to be controllable. Now, I didn't think in those days about cure versus treatment. Uh, because really, I was up to my neck in it uh, in 1995. I mean, I had hundreds of patients in the clinic. Nobody was getting any better. I was going to five funerals a week, and it was just an impossible situation. And then all of a sudden, people stopped being so sick. And then in March, two other drugs, Crixivan and uh, Ritonavir, came out. And all of a sudden, the drugs started rolling in and rolling in. And 
possibly by 1998, I got the impression that we might be able to cure this. And that's one of the reasons why I left primary care and went to research entirely because I wanted to be part of the, I wanted to be on the team that found the cure. And I left in, uh, in 1999 and went to Cornell and that's what I've been doing ever since. We haven't found the cure yet, but I think we're so close. I think we're so, so close. I, I would agree with that. I think that even COVID is getting us closer in terms of any kind of research where we can really look at how do we treat viruses um, and how do we respond to them. After decades, obviously, of fighting HIV and, and AIDS, we've made great advances, right? People can live with, with HIV, they can be undetectable. But I often wonder, you know, for those who didn't come up through the beginning of, of HIV and AIDS, is there a complacency around it? Because even though there are treatments, that doesn't mean that there's there's not complications, right? I mean, it's, oh. it's not an easy path for somebody no. to live with HIV even today. Well, you know, I, I'm always, uh, I have to say that I straddle that line between um, wanting to do as much for prevention as possible and also not rip away somebody's hope when they do, in fact, get infected, because that still does happen. One and a half million people got infected in 2020. So what's going to happen with them? So we can't leave them behind. But the prevention methods have been getting much better. Treatment as prevention is one of the biggest ones, of course. Treatment as prevention cannot be un under undervalued because that is just uh, or overstated or understated, whatever, uh, because it is such a huge has such a huge impact on transmission. As you know, most people who transmit HIV don't even know they have it themselves. Um, and so part of the problem is the issue of, and I'm going to hark back to this again and again, is educating people in general. I mean, children from the beginning learn all sorts of crap about Columbus discovering America, but they never learn a thing about the thing that there's mo that's most precious to them, which is their own body. They never le learn anything about anatomy and physiology about sexual health. They don't ever learn about medications and the consequences, about the consequences of drug use. They just don't ever learn any of that so that there's no way for them to think critically about it when they get to be old enough to interact with those systems that might want them to have sex unsafely or to, to use substances for which they just don't have any idea what's even in them. I, I just think that, that I go back and back to education and that I think that we could all do better if we would educate all our children about these things so that when they grow up, they can think critically. But there will always be groups of people who are, are lesser educated. And I got to tell you, that's who's getting HIV now. People who are lesser educated, who are poor, people of color, both young men and young women who just don't understand how to make a critical decision about anything. They don't know about money. They don't know about education. They don't know about sex. They don't know about health. And so how can we expect them to protect themselves? There's no way. So it's I mean, our you... most disadvantaged segments of society are overlooked, underrepresented, I think, that suffer the most, right? And we 
talked about this before. If, if you've got money and you've got means, um, you can get the best drugs and the best treatment. And if you don't, you won't. Right. And though, although you said to yourself, well, will some people who even have the advantages sometimes acquire HIV? The answer is yes. Of course, of course. So in, you know, I have been doing a PrEP study for since 2017. And although we had over 70 people enrolled at our site, we've only had two people who actually converted. But why did those two people convert? What happened there? For the most part, it's because they got tired of taking the meds or I don't know what they thought, but you know, it was a huge shock. And of course it was very upsetting for everybody involved because that was our whole goal was to make sure that nobody got infected. So uh, you can only do what you can do, but if you could get rid of the 1.5 million who were never in a prep program or who never got any education about how to take care of themselves or to make decent decisions, then that would certainly uh, pave the way for eliminating AIDS by 2030, which is supposedly the, the world's public health uh, goal. You know, as we kind of come towards the end of our time, tomorrow is World AIDS Day. If you could speak to every young person in the world and they could hear your message, what would you share with them having gone through this experience? As far as globally, I would say that as Valerie pointed out so vehemently, we have to educate everybody. Everybody needs to know what's happening with their own bodies. The other thing that we have to do is we have to give people options. We have to give them healthcare options and we have to steer them in the right direction. And in, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go two ways here. Number one is we can't forget what happened in the late seventies, early eighties. We can't forget it because, you know, again, they, they say those who forget or don't know history are doomed to repeat it. And that, that is still so clear. I think that people who are now coming into healthcare and now consider themselves AIDS healthcare providers, HIV healthcare providers or activists, they have to know whose shoulders they've been standing on for four decades here. And I, I think that we have to be aware. It's like, it's like people denying the Holocaust ever existed. They're deniers. If you didn't walk in our shoes, you could not have known what it was like to be there. You know, part of the reason why I'm so thankful that the book is out there and being read and hopefully, you know, being read more and in generations to come is that we have a certain amount of deniers, just like we have, you know, we have certain politicians that are, you know, anti-vax and anti-mask and, you know, basically anti-living for people. We don't want to have the same thing happen with HIV. I don't want it ever denied again that people shouldn't have access to education and care. And so the two things that I would say is let's not forget the unfinished lives, those lives that were well-lived but unfinished. And let's give people, especially those demarginalized, stigmatized, I mean, we have to stop this. The old adage of everything I, everything that is important to me, I learned in kindergarten, you know, let's share, let's take naps, let's be, be kind to one another. You know, like those are the basic building blocks of humanity. You know, what we learned when we were little kids, share your toys, you know, wash your hands and be kind to one another. And that's the message that I, I would leave with anybody that I get an opportunity to talk to. So I have a slightly different answer than that because mine would 
definitely depend on who my audience was. Children are different in the same way that adults are different and they hear messages in different ways. If there's any way to encourage people to stay in school and learn about their bodies, learn about what makes systems work so that they can make decent decisions, learn about critical thinking. You know, that's not something that is ever in a curriculum, critical thinking. You need to take a philosophy class for that. <laughs> so I think that we need to be as involved uh, with education as parents are. I mean, I'm not a parent. I never had any children, but I'm deeply interested in what our children are being taught because they're going to inherit all of this. So they have to learn how to deal with it. And the, and the last thing that I want to say is the issue of control over our own bodies. You know, that's something that's a very big deal. I know it's a big deal in your state. It's <laughs> oh, huge. So you have on one hand, these people who will say, well, I want sovereignty over my own body. I don't want to have to wear a mask and I don't want to have to take an injection if I don't want to. But if you get pregnant, I want to say over what happens to that baby. I want a say over what happens to you and your family. I think that pointing out to people their ability to hold two completely incongruent ideas at once is, uh, you know, that kind of crap might be reduced somewhat if we were to teach children critical thinking. I would agree. You know, we're, we're running out of time. I wanted to also point out how appreciative I was in reading the book that you shared, not only your professional experience going through this and, and caring for patients, but you shared pieces of yourself as well. So we got a glimpse into your own lives at the time. And I think that's so valuable um, as a reader, for me, I was able to connect with you in ways outside of even, you know, HIV and AIDS, and, and you became real people the same way your patients were. And, and I want to commend you for that, because I think it's thank you. always risky, right? When we put ourselves out there, what are people going to think? Yes, it is. You know? <laughs> Um, who wants to hear my story? Uh, so, so that's very powerful. Thank you. Thank you. Very welcome. I know we're gonna, you know, get some more eyes on your book. I think it's a, an important story. I think every young person needs to know, to your point, whose shoulders they stand on, so that we can, if if not eliminate entirely this virus we can continue to drive it down to the point where it's affecting less and less people. We thank you for, uh, for engaging with us too. And thank you for reading our book. Thank okay. you, Anthony. Thank you. thank you both. Thank you for listening to this episode of Espresso Talks. Copies of Ellen and Valerie's book, Nurses on the Inside, Stories of the HIV AIDS Epidemic in NYC, can be purchased on Amazon. To learn more about Ellen and Valerie and the book, visit their website, nursesontheinside.com. 